0: Yes, Lily, if you want to leave your Bibles open uh, at Hebrews chapter 8, I want to add my welcome to Lachlan's. My name's is Rowan. Uh, great to have you here tonight as we get to listen to what God is saying to us, um, the way He's spoken to us. Uh, it's a pretty exciting part of God's Word because tonight we get to see something that holds the whole Bible together, not just the whole Bible but the whole world. So why don't we pray and we ask God right now to help us to understand what He said to us. Father God, as we sit here this evening... As we have heard your word read, we ask that by your spirit and through this word, you might comfort us, you might open our eyes to what you've been doing throughout all history, and you might give us a sense of walking away from hearing you tonight of great joy for what you've done for us. Pray this in your Son's name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had a go at reading the Bible cover to cover. Uh, you might be here checking out the things of God. Someone's invited you along tonight, and you're like, what is this Christianity? And you, you might have flipped open the Bible at some point and read uh, from the beginning, from the book of Genesis, and kind of seen these exciting moments. Uh, and, and God said, let there be light, and there was. Well, that's pretty amazing, right? The, the creation of light. Uh, or you, you kind of read through further, further through the Bible in, in Genesis, and you hear these stories of you know, great flood, and kind of, it's like an epic journey, right? And there's all these great things happening. you gets to the book of Exodus, and in Exodus, it's kind of crazy stuff everywhere. God's people that He'd given a promise to bring them out of slavery and bring them into a promised land. That they're in slavery in Egypt, and God's saying, "Let my people go." We went through this book of of Exodus not too long ago, and the sermons are online if you want to check them out. But it's just this epic journey, right? Exciting stuff, plagues, death, tension, um, a pursuit. God's people are pursued. They get to the Red Sea. What will happen? you know, God divides the sea, you're like, yeah, I'm in, I want to keep reading through this book, what is going on with these people? And then the the, the kind of water comes in, and then God takes them to a mountain called Mount Sinai, and there He speaks. And He says, you'll be my people, and I will be your God. And it's this exciting moment, you're like, wow, the God of the universe, if this is true, is actually speaking. And then we get to hear some of the content, more than just the Ten Commandments of what He's saying, and if I'm honest, it's boring. Have you ever found that? You're reading through the Bible and you get to kind of Exodus 20, you hear the Ten Commandments and then suddenly it's like God switches into tent maker mode. And He starts talking to people about all this sort of tent and its furnishings and and kind of making all the the kind of inside bits and pieces of this tent that's going on and what they're to do and you're like, whoa, and there's like page after page and you're like, man, where's the excitement? What is going on? And then suddenly you realize this is not just some crazy camper writing about tents. This is the God of the universe speaking. Why is He going on and on about these rules? I want to show you some of them. Uh, you can write down Exodus uh, twenty. Uh, sorry, Exodus 25 if you want. We'll come back to it a little bit later. But let me just read, I'll, I'll summarize the thousand words I have in front of me. Here you go. They had to make an ark, I'm at 25 verse 10. They had to make an ark of acacia wood, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold, inside and out. Also make a gold re- molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and place them on its four feet, two rings on one side, two rings on the other side. Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the side of the ark in order to carry the ark with them. Uh, The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They must not be removed from it. You're like, okay, all right. And then he keeps going, right? Put the tablets of the testimony, that's the Ten Commandments, that I'll give you into this ark, this box. And then make a mercy seat, whatever that is, of pure gold, um, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, in case you're wondering how to make that. And then two cherubim of gold. Hey, what does a cherubim look like? Uh, you, okay, uh, make them of hammered work uh, at the two ends of the mercy seat. And then he tells us what the cherubim are supposed to look like. Put one at one end, one at the other. Um, make their wings spread out. Uh, make the faces of the cherubim, in verse 20, uh, 20 uh, toward, facing toward the mercy seat. Uh, and then you kind of go, what, what is this? And then, and then in verse 23, you're to construct a table. You're like, all right, this is going to go on for a while. And then you hear through the table how to make that. And then in verse 31, you make a lampstand out of pure gold and ornamental cups and calyxes, whatever they are, and petals. And kind of, why is this going on like this? Uh, verse 37, make seven lamps. Uh, the lamps that be set up so they illuminate in front of it. It's snuffers and fire pans must be of pure gold. Love that word, snuffer. It puts out the fire, right? Uh, anyway, the lamp stands with all these utensils, are to be made from 75 pounds of pure gold. Now, one thing you kind of get is, man, that's expensive. But why is God, the creator of the universe, kind of saying all this stuff? You get to the next chapter, chapter 26, you had to construct the tabernacle, which is the tent, uh, with ten curtains... They must be of finely spun linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarn with a design of cherubim worked into them. Good thing we knew what the cherubim was supposed to look like and God's given them earlier and so we can give them now. And in the middle of that, God says, Be careful to make all these things, in verse 40, according to the pattern you've been shown on the mountain. You kind of stand back and you go, What is going on here? You ever get bogged down as you read through the Bible and think, What, what is God doing with all this kind of fine detail? What do you make of this kind of ritual and religion? There are many kind of types of faith around the world that are ritualistic, that have got these kind of processes and patterns and certain ornaments that they make and that becomes the centre of of what they do. Is this just another religion like that? What is God doing here? Now, some people read this and they go, what's happening is here is a picture of a God who cares about form, about art. He loves the finer things, the gold, and this is just part of what he is like. And, and, and that's what this bit's really all about. And so we should be able to love the finer things because we should be like God because we're made in his image. And I want to say, no, that's not what this is talking about at all. That's a lot of rubbish about this bit. God does, it is a God who is a creative God. He's a God who does love form and art. You just got to look at the human body to work out, wow, what an amazing creator you are look at the stars look at the creation that exists around us and you're like man that's good um basically the psalmists talk about the the heavens declaring the, go- the glory of god right the, the stars are god's bling they're like look at what i can do i can make it just because i can and make you go hey this is this is awesome god cares about form but he's not saying this stuff here to go look I'm, i just need a flashy kind of temple I need like some gold cherubim and some nice curtains and that's what I need. It's not that at all. What he's doing this for is to hold the whole Bible together. Right here, he's explaining something that holds the whole Bible and what God is doing in his plans throughout history together. How is that? Well, let me show you. To understand the Old Testament properly, we must understand how the New Testament writers who are inspired by God come along and interpret it. They come along and say, do you know what was happening here? And tonight, we get to see the writer of Hebrews holding it all together and showing us something about these symbols and signs and rituals that God set up to help us understand what's really going on. Hebrews 8 verse 5, it's on the screen. These things serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he's about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, and he quotes the verse from Exodus Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. These things, the writer of Hebrews is saying, are a copy and a shadow. What's he talking about? He's talking about this tent, this, this tabernacle that God made up that, that was, was to be the place where God would dwell. And we'll see more of this next week. We're talking about the Old Testament law that the Ten Commandments that were given at Mount Sinai when God spoke and everyone was so scared, they're like, Moses, you go up and you tell us what he says. And they heard the voice of God. And we're talking about those Ten Commandments. We're talking about the priesthood. The idea that there was a, a Levitical priest who would come and take the sacrifice before God year after year for the sins of the people. And he was the one on whom all people rode. The whole priesthood and, in fact, the whole Old Testament covenant was but a copy and shadow what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that all of these things were only a shadow of the real thing, copies of what was to come. The reason God warned Moses to get the copies right was because they were to point us to something better. And if you get the copy wrong, if you get a sign wrong and it leads people in the wrong direction, then you miss the key thing, the reality that is there. These signs were never to represent themselves. This covenant was never to say, this is what it's all about, but it was always about pointing us forward to something to come. We've got uh, four kids. Uh, last year, Lara, who's four, she's our oldest girl, um, she, she's five now, but she was four last year, she came home from kindy when they were celebrating at kindy this week of the family. I don't know what that was, but the uh, explaining to everyone at the kindergarten about what their family was like. And they had to draw a picture that represented their family, that kind of showed all the kids that are there at the kindergarten what their family was like. And so here's the picture uh, that Lara uh, drew for our for all the kindergarten. I think it's a pretty cool picture, right? It's pretty exciting. Now, I've got a permission to show you this tonight, but the thing that kind of... There's a couple of issues, right? Uh, Firstly, I don't think that represents my hair very well. There's, there's a sense in which I'm a little bit offended. I'm like, do you really think my hair is that big, Lara? Like, and then you look at my nose. It's, like, it's in line with my eyes, and I've only got one nostril. Like, it's kind of cute, right? But then again, where's my torso? Where are my arms? I don't have any of them either, right? They're just out. And then you kind of you look at that. But you, so this is supposed to be a representation of our family. And, um, and I'm just, there's a little bit, in, in a sense, that I'm offended. I'm like, Lara, do you really think that that is us? I, I asked her to get permission to do this. I said, Lara, are you okay if I show people at church and at uni church this photo? And she said, no. And I'm like, oh, why not? And she said, oh, I, I, don't, I don't really want you to. Anyway, and I think it's fair that if I'm going to use our kids in an illustration, they get something out of it. And so I said, look, how about if, if I show it, would you let me show it if I buy you an ice cream? She goes, yes. <laughs> Straight away. And it's at night, she's in bed, and I'm like, wow. I said, Lara, why didn't you want me to show it? And she goes, because your hair's really big. (laughs) And I said, were you actually embarrassed to show people because you drew my hair so big? She goes, yeah. And she's like, and can you tell them I was only four when I drew it? So (laughs) there you go. Now, the other thing that kind of scared me about our family is that she's added an extra family member. I don't know if you've noticed that. See the kind of angel up the top right? We don't know who that is. We're like, that doesn't represent our family, who, who is this? And she just kind of smiles, i like, is this something you know that we don't? Like, we only have four kids. Um, <laughs> As you read the Old Testament law, you are getting a real representation of what is going on. You're getting the only God-approved artist impersonation the representation of the future that is to happen. That's why God said to Moses, make sure you get this stuff right, not because it's got to be right in and of itself, but because it's pointing forward to something better, something that will hold the whole Bible together. You know, now, if I had that picture of Sarah, which I thought was one of the, the great bits of it, you know, look, she looked really great in that photo. I'm like, if I had that picture of Sarah in front of me, and I had the real Sarah in front of me, which one do you think I'd want to kiss? Right, it's pretty weird to kiss the, the photo, right, when you've got the real person there. Um, So there is is something good about a right picture that points to reality, but there's something even better about the reality. We as people, we want the real thing. And what God is saying is that the real thing is coming. And the writer of Hebrews is about to show us what everything that had been written pre-Jesus was actually about. He's going to say, it was all, everything that was written pre-Jesus, a shadow and a copy of this. Verse 6. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, He is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you remember that guy Moses, the kind of is the law that the whole Old Testament is based on? Yeah, Jesus has a superior ministry to Him. What? Moses brought us God. He brought us God's commandments. He brought us the whole Old Testament law, writer of Hebrews is saying, yes, and all that was a shadow and copy of Jesus, who would be superior to him. Because he brought in a better covenant, based on better promises. There is something better about what is to come in, something about this real thing, something that is fuller, based on better promises. If you read your Bible week by week, and you kind of look at the Old Testament, and you try and look for the things that the Old Testament promises to be fulfilled exactly, whether that be the restoration of the temple, whether that be that sacrificial system, we want to go back to those sort of things. If if you look and say, yes, I must apply those to me now, then you've taken the shadow. You've taken the artist's representation and you've fallen in love with it rather than the real thing. You've missed the full brilliance of what God was always pointing forward to and what He's come to do for us. You've missed what God is about on this world. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there's no continuity between the, the old covenant and the new I'm not saying the promises that God has made to the Jews have failed. I'm saying they've been clarified. They've been turned up. They're brightened. They're better. What we have now is far better than what the Old Testament shadows and copies are pointing forward to. Now, this is not just me kind of reading the text and spiritualizing it. Sometimes people say you come along and you're like, oh, you're you're just spiritualizing all the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament. No, no. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's actually saying, this is what it was really about. Those things are a shadow and copy. That's just the reality. I don't know if you've ever seen um, a rugby match. Start of a rugby match. Sometimes, I don't know, the World Cup, they do this and, and big teams. They, they have, you know, the locker rooms where you run out from. And they have these massive big kind of paper pictures across them with like photos of the team on there. You know, it might say the Blues and they hold them up. And then like the, the fanfare goes and the Blues run around they like smash through this picture of them. Have you ever seen that happen? No, who's, who's seen that? Yeah, okay, right, right, you got that picture, well done, thank you. Um, so, it's kind of like this, imagine that sort of scene, imagine for 1500 years, people have been painstakingly putting together a big compilation image, a big piece of paper, with the Ten Commandments on them, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the temple, uh, guided by God, of course, and putting the detail in and helping uh, people to understand what it's about, and they've filled this in 1,500 years' worth of detail. What the writer of Hebrews is saying, at the moment Jesus stepped onto the world, He smashed through that picture, tore it down, and the real thing had arrived. No longer do you need to look at those things as, wow, look at the law, it's amazing. There are amazing things about the law, but now Jesus is here, it's like, have you seen Him? The people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to feel the temptation to be falling in love with the picture rather than the person, falling in love with ritual, with a smaller detail, rather than recognizing how Jesus has filled those out. So in verse 7, the writer of Hebrews shows us what's wrong with this old picture. 8 verse 7, for if the covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. What's the first thing we need to understand? Well, firstly, we've got to understand, what is a covenant? And what is this? People talking about covenants. Um, Well, covenant is just basically, it's a contract between two parties legal obligations. You know, you might have one person promise something and the other person say, well, in order to get that, I'll make sure I do this. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a contract between two parties and, and the covenant that is talking about here is the contract God made with Israel on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, uh, that God made with His people when He gave them the Ten Commandments. Um, Exodus 20, verse 2, it's on the screen, this is what God said when this contract was cut. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. I do not have any other gods beside me. Do not make any idols, do not take the Lord's name in vain. It goes through the Ten Commandments, but do you see that? I am Yahweh, your God. I have saved you. I brought you out of Egypt. Now, this is how you continue if you want me to be your God. Here is the covenant, the contract that is set up, and it's a great contract. It's got built into it so many good things. Now, the Greeks, when they translated the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word for covenant, they translated the word to mean testament. So actually, when you read the the Greek version of the Old Testament, it talks about the Old Testament and the New Testament, a new testimony about what God had said on that day. That's why we've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. This issue, this concept is not just some peripheral kind of thing that the Bible college nerds need to know about. This is what divides the whole Bible. There are two overarching covenants that God has spoken through and made promises to His people. This is the heart of the whole Bible. This is how you hold the whole thing together. Shadow to reality. First covenant to new covenant. That's what God is doing. So, the covenant, that, that's what it's all about. Secondly, so what was wrong with the first one? You know, was it that God was in heaven in all eternity with the Spirit and the Son and they're like, I oh, will make up this covenant and does this plan and then they kind of get there and like, ah, oh, that wasn't brilliant. Didn't think of that. You know, was that it? You know, is it? Is it that God didn't do a great job at the first one so he had to sit a supplementary exam and come back a bit later and have another go? Like, wh- what was going on here? Well, none of that. Have a look at what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. So you see that? There was a problem with the first covenant. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a need for a second one. We've got to acknowledge that. There's something not right about the first covenant. But look at verse 8. But finding fault with His people, He says. The problem didn't lie with God making a covenant that was defunct. The problem sat with the people who couldn't obey it. We couldn't keep their side of the bargain, and so there were consequences for that. In that original covenant, it was good. There was forgiveness. you just got to look at Exodus 34. It talks about the forgiveness of God and the promises of God's love, or um, the call for faith that we'll see in Hebrews 11, talked about throughout the whole Old Testament, or look at Numbers 14 if you want to check it out later. The Old Covenant was, was good. It had good things about it. But the problem was these things never impacted people's hearts. It never changed of the people. That's why I, I kind of think that politicians have a hard time in life. See, a politician's job is to make the law and to set law up so that people know what to do and so that people won't do things that are wrong and the, politi- the, the politicians employ really fancy lawyers and they kind of work out how they can do it. And then all the people with lots of money who want to get around the law employ even fancier lawyers and they, rather than kind of obey that, they come up with loopholes and ways to get around it and so people are consistently just trying to outlaw one another and it doesn't really work. Politicians are never going to get there by getting the best law ever. Wouldn't it be amazing if the politicians were able to just change the hearts of everyone, actually obey the the heart of a law? Wouldn't it just be, people would be like, oh yeah, get this and off we would go. No need for police, no need for enforcement, people would just be doing what the law had set up. Well, that's what's going on here. The first covenant was the regulations that were good and right, but they required people to obey them. The second covenant got into people's hearts. God didn't give bad commands. The people had bad hearts. We have bad hearts. But listen to what the prophet Jeremiah said in the Old Testament. Uh, After this point, listen to what he said after Exodus. Jeremiah 31, which actually is quoted in Hebrews 8, right in front of us. There's a promise of this new covenant even then. Listen, look. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by their hands and led them out of the land of Egypt. I disregarded them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. The issue with the old covenant is that the people did not continue in it. They didn't keep their promises. Look at verse 10, though. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Another covenant was coming. Another promise, another contract. He'd promised that there would be a day when the reality would come, that the shadow would bring forward into the time that the reality would be seen and we see here the writer of Hebrews explained for us three ways that this covenant is better three ways that it is just so much better than what had gone before and it's my hope that as we see these through now that we'd be amazed at what God has actually done let's have a look number one this new covenant was internal not external look at verse 10 I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The answer to seeing a world that is morally right is not new laws, is not education. It's God putting new hearts in people. This new covenant was no longer an external law outside of us, but something within us, a change of heart. People that would want to obey and want to serve this God. No longer external in regulations, but this internal desire and motivation to live God's way, to serve Him. The new covenant would bring about people who would want to serve Him. That's all very well, but how does that work? How is it that God can do that? How can He give us new hearts? Does He literally walk along and rip out the heart and stick a new one in? Like, what is going on? Well, again, a little bit further later, Ezekiel speaks of how this whole thing would happen. And again, all this stuff has been promised. So have a listen. Ezekiel 11, it's on the screen, verse 19. Write it down and check it out in context later if you want. Ezekiel 11, verse 19. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh so they may follow my statutes, keep my ordinances and practice them. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. The Ten Commandments were chiseled on stone and what God does is He says He will chisel His law on our hearts so that we want to obey and He does that through His Spirit. The promise was of a Spirit, God the Spirit who would come and dwell in His people. God would put His Spirit in people and that's exactly what Jesus' death and resurrection achieved for those who trust in Him. That God's Spirit dwell inside them and, and change the way that they think. Have a look at 2 Corinthians 3 verse 3 and and hear what Paul says about these people who belong to the New Covenant. It's on the screen, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 3. It's clear, speaking of the Corinthians, that you are Christ's letter, produced by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on stone tablets, but on tablets that are hearts of flesh. If you trust in Jesus... You have God's law written on your heart because the Spirit of God lives inside you. Now, that sounds crazy. You're kind of sitting here going, what is this, the God's Spirit? This, this stuff sounds crazy. So the odds that you're alive right now. <laughs> so the odds that when you look at the universe that we actually exist. It's not actually outside the realm of possibility that the God who made the universe would actually come and step into it. You wouldn't expect Him to, but that's amazing that He would step into my not just world, but heart and change, and shape me. God is with us. It's what this new covenant brings. Not just an external set of laws that people understood and read, but God dwelling inside them. They were only able to get into the temple, into God's presence once. And really, it was just the high priest who would go in on their behalf. But we have God with us, if you trust in Jesus. No more needing to remain in God's promises by our own willpower. But now, by the power of God's Spirit, we finally get what it means to trust Him. Without God in us, we wouldn't trust Jesus. Without God showing us who He is and what He's done and taking away the scales of our own blindness and self-centeredness, we would not understand nor seek Him. We'd reject Jesus and walk away. Yet God steps in and it shows us what He has done in His Son. Without God's Spirit, we'd not be renewed day by day to be more like Him. The New Covenant, it doesn't say, great, you've got God's Spirit, now do it on your own. The New Covenant says, now God is in you and He will do it in you. He will enable you to see Jesus as He is, to desire Him, to desire putting Him first. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? God in us, changing our hearts. That's the promise of this new covenant. Secondly, the second reason the new covenant is better is that we may may actually know God in a way that's intimate and not distant. Have a look at verse 11 of chapter 8. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. Now, when you first read that you're like what just last week didn't we hear the writer of hebrews say in hebrews 6 that you ought to be teachers by now you need to get off the milk and grow up you need to take your maturity seriously and work out what you're doing and be teachers and now you're telling us that there'll not be any teachers anymore like what is with that each person will not teach his fellow citizen is the writer of hebrews kind of mixed up no what he's saying is <laughs> the rest of the sentence each person will not teach his fellow citizen saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. He's saying, we don't need to teach someone else what God is like, because if you are, are in Him, you will know God yourself. If you trust Jesus, you will know God, really know Him in, in a personal sense, know what He has done in the past, be able to speak to Him, hear from Him, from His Word, His Spirit change and mold you. You will know Him. You don't need to hear it secondhand from someone else. You can know God. Now, if you're here and you are checking out Christianity, I want to say, if this is true, this is very attractive. You can know the God who made you. That's the claim of the Bible, that you can know Him personally and that He knows you It's really worth seeing more of how we understand this God, how we may know Him. And we'll get to that in a second. I think this idea of knowing God, though, I think Facebook has done us a disservice. I think Facebook's great. You know, it's helpful to be able to know people around the world and be able to keep in contact with them. Um, Our family, or Sarah's side of the family, have this Facebook group called Our Awesome Family. And every time I go back, there's like 120 new messages I'm just like, are you serious? Like, so I've just got to unmute and occasionally I read some and they've only lately, it's only been a recent thing that us in-laws have been included, one of them got included and then suddenly everyone else was invited in and we're like, whoa, I kind of don't want to know. It's, but it's this great way they're able to keep in, in contact with one another, which is helpful. But where Facebook's not helpful is is when we kind of go, oh, you're my friend. We might We might just friend someone who's a friend of a friend or we've seen them once or... They, they give us a friend request and we notice they've got eight friends that are in common and so we're like, No, oh, yeah, I probably know you. And so you hit the, <laughs> yep, no problems. You know? And, and we, we don't take this kind of friendship and this relationship deeply, we just think it's, it's an acquaintance. But the type of knowledge that God is talking about here of Himself is that you might know Him intimately. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, to be able to speak to Him for Him to be in your life and to know His character and His desire and His plans and His future. To be able to hear from Him in the words, to be able to pray to Him and call Him your Dad. What Jesus has done in this new covenant is allowed us to be united to Him and walk into the throne room and up to the Father and say, Dad, help me please. Dad, thank you for what you've done for me. We get to know God in this intimate way. The Jews, they were at such a distance. God, yeah, he had revealed himself. Yeah, he, he dwelt in, in the temple. Uh, and they kind of, that was the, the place where he was, but they never got to get, go into that center place. You can know God. You can call him your dad. It's not some temporary experience that He's talking about either. It's not like, oh, I had a glimpse of Him and that was it, it it kind of passed by. But because Jesus is bringing in the new covenant, He brings us into the presence of God in a permanent way. God lives in us by His Spirit, He is here and we can speak to God because of Jesus the mediator, the one who's died in our place and brings us to God forgiven. We can speak to God and know Him in a real experiential sense. We may not hear God's voice audibly, But we hear what he has said to us in his word, and his spirit makes that word come alive, sharper than a two edged sword, showing us judging the thoughts and ideas of our hearts. God speaks to us today, and he does it in a way that is real. We're in the presence of God if you trust Jesus. Sometimes I hear people talk about um, that, that time at church when we sing as, as, a, as a time of worship. And it's true. We worship God uh, when we come to church, but we also breathe when we come to church, right? Uh, both. The, the, we worship God in all of our life. We breathe in all of our life. Uh, the distinctive of church is not worship. You worship God everywhere. When you drive your car down the road, when you uh, don't cheat on your exams, when you kind of... Pay, that's how you worship God, right? And if that's new to you, that might be something helpful for what's coming up, um, but we worship God with all of our life. Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, in view of what God has done for us, in view of God's mercy. So worship is all of life. But sometimes I hear people saying and thinking that when we sing in church, we are ushering in the presence of God. That we sing in such a way that, oh, I felt like God was really there tonight. And you kind of like, really, was there a time when he, when he wasn't there? Like, is there a time when he for those who trust in Jesus, when God wasn't dwelling in us? No, He's with us all the time. And you know, sometimes you hear people, you know, they're playing and they're thinking that as you, you've got to have music while you pray because that, that's how God's Spirit is there and somehow God doesn't like it when it goes silent. And so if the, if the keyboard stops while you're praying, it's like, God, <laughs> Spirit, where are you? Well, what's happened? Where have you gone? Because of Jesus, we are permanently, if we trust in Him, In the presence of God, God in us, we know Him and He knows us. Don't fall for this weak view of God's presence, that He is only here when we can somehow usher Him in. Jesus has done it for us. (laughs) If you are in Him, God is with us. You know Him experientially, subjectively. You hear Him in His Word. Well, number one, uh, this new covenant brings in an internal change. Number two, it allows us to know God, really. And number three, the third way that it's better is that sin is forgiven. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful to their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. That idea of ritual, uh, there are some religions, there are some parts of Roman Catholicism that says that the way that we get right with God is by doing certain ritual. By the way that we get our sins forgiven is by going to a man behind a booth and confessing to him who is a priest. Uh, it's by saying ten Hail Marys. It's by needing to do these certain rituals and rules in order to be right with God. And in the Old Testament, the only way you could be right with God was if you took Him at His word and did the sacrificial system. You took the the, the sheep or the goat and you put your hands on it and you slit its throat and went, Because of my sin, this, this sheep had to die. It's a very visual symbol pointing us to what God was really doing in Jesus. And we'll hear more of that sacrifice next week. But what we're seeing here in verse 12 is that in this new covenant, God will never again remember sins, sins are forgiven. If you're in Jesus, your great high priest has entered once behind the curtain and offered that true sacrifice of his life. Your sin is wiped away. Everything you've ever said or done or thought or touched has been forgiven if you've trusted Jesus, if your life is in his hands. He's paid the price once and for all. When Jesus was nailed to the cross and he breathed his last, the culmination of all of history, of all what God was doing, Jesus chose three words to say as he died. Do you know what they were? It is finished. It's finished. Death is defeated. Sin has been done away. I have paid the penalty for sin in its entirety. Sin is forgiven in Jesus. We don't need to keep coming back to him and and saying, God, please forgive me again. Please die again for the more sins that I've done. No, He's done it for us, once and for all, paid so long as you are in Him. For some of us, we need to hear more often the seriousness of our rebellion against God. Some of us, we, we, we generally tend on the side of life that's just cruising along and like, yeah, it's alright, it's not that bad. We forget that Jesus died, God the Son died for us, rebelling against God. Some of us, we need to recognize the real warning of Scripture that sin is serious. It deserves death forever. But for others of us, our consciences are so easily pricked. We look at our life and the way that we we live and the times that we fall short, and we hear Satan whispering, It's too much. You've done too much. God won't forgive that. You've done it again. Last time you said you wouldn't, and now you've done it. Just walk away. You can't do it. He won't forgive you anymore. He can't. And, and we listen to Satan. We listen to ourselves and our consciences feel like, oh, how is it that God could forgive me for what I have done? If you don't already think that, let me assure you, there'll be a time in life when you do something so dumb that you will think, I need to walk. I, 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 I cannot come back to my God. You are so embarrassed. Im- embarrassed, so appalled. I remember reflecting a time for me where uh, we, um, when, when we fell pregnant with Amy, about to move to New Zealand. I'm like, far out. Uh, what's it going to be like, moving to a new country, starting a church with eight people in it, a, and then having a three-month-old baby, like three months later, having a baby in a totally new country. I'm like, this is crazy. And so Sarah, like, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, maybe we should actually abort this child. Why would I think that? Now, we didn't do it. <laughs> But I was a serious kind of, why was my head that way? Because I am utterly ugly before my God. Because left to my own devices without God coming in and, and breaking my heart and helping me to see his law, I would do all sorts of atrocities. It's finished, says Jesus. I've paid the price. Whatever you have done, the only thing that can be too much for my forgiveness is rejecting me, is walking away from me. He's saying, like the warning that the writer of Hebrews gave us last week, I don't need you anymore. I'm going to go back to that old way once we have tasted the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. It is finished. If you've trusted Jesus, this new covenant has brought forgiveness and assurance and hope so long as you persevere in Him, so long as you stay attached to the One who brings you into the presence of God and allows you to call Him your Dad. If you're here today and you haven't come to accept Jesus as the One who is the King and Ruler and Saviour of your life, I want to say, what better leg do you have to stand on How will you stand on that final day before God other than what Jesus has offered us here? I want to say come and check out who this Jesus is. Come and see what he has done for you and what he is offering you. A new heart, relationship with God, life forever, forgiveness. And if you're someone who does trust Jesus, then don't spend your life looking back at the shadows of ritual and religion. Look back to the Old Testament and what was promised there and see them as pointing forward to the brightness of what Jesus has achieved for us. The amazing nature that we can now know God and have new hearts and have our sin fully forgiven and be certain of it because death has been defeated. Because Jesus, the great high priest, the king and the high priest is here, bringing what the old covenant could only point forward to. He is smashed through that picture and he has arrived. So we, as people who trust Jesus, need to be so thankful. What a privilege it is to know our God, to call Him our Dad, to know of that forgiveness. How does that truth affect the way you live this week? Do you see how much greater we have it, how much better the promises are? We need to worship our God, not in order to get into His presence, but because we are in His presence. We need to serve Him with our life. We need to be joyful in our response to Him. And why wouldn't we be? For He has given us life. He's given us access to God. Why don't we pray to that God right now?